Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City. On this show, we explore emerging trends and important policy issues across cities and countries and ask, how could this work in Baltimore? We change the conversation from, what's wrong with Baltimore, to, what's next for Baltimore? We're starting today's show with sobering statistics. The National Institute on Drug Abuse reports every day more than 130 people in the United States die after overdosing on opioids. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is $78.5 billion a year, including the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. And frankly, the problem is only getting worse. Opioid overdoses increased 30% from July 2016 through September 2017 in 52 areas in 45 states. And Maryland is among the top five states with the highest rates of opioid-related overdose deaths. The death rate in Maryland has consistently been above the national average since 1999, ranging from roughly 1.5 to three times the average rate. In 2016, nearly 30 deaths per 100,000 people were related to opioids, including prescription opioids, heroin, and fentanyl, compared to the national rate of 13.3 deaths per 100,000. This is a national health care emergency and a national tragedy. So what's being done about it? Today on the show, we'll be exploring the personal impacts of opioid and drug addiction, the tolls on families, and what states and cities are doing to address this issue as the health care crisis that it is. To start us off, we're joined by healthcare reporter at The New York Times. She's the author of a recent article focused on Dayton, Ohio, entitled, this city's overdose deaths have plunged. Can others learn from it? It is a fantastic article. And, uh, and Abby, thanks for calling in and thanks for saying yes to joining us. Sure thing. So first of all, I'd like to acquaint our listeners with the situation in Dayton, Ohio. This is a city that had one of the highest overdose rates in the country, correct? Yes, still pretty high. And still pretty high. But, but now it's, uh, the city's overdose rates are down 50% from the previous year, which is an incredible number. And in your article, you go through some of the changes that Ohio uh, has made that may have contributed. Um, can we start with one of them? You talk about the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, right. Can you talk more about that? Well, Ohio is one of a bunch of states now, um, well over 30, I think, to decide to go ahead and expand Medicaid, which was an option under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, starting in 2014, states could do that. And what it meant was it could cover through free, pretty free government health insurance a lot more low-income adults who had never had qualified for um, government health insurance before. And for states that were really hard hit by 
the opioid epidemic, and Ohio was a huge example of that. Um, a lot of the health needs um, for this population, the low-income adult population, had to do with addiction and the need for addiction treatment. So Ohio had a huge, and Dayton had a huge um, tool they could use to to try to start treating opioid addiction with the health insurance program that the government, both the state and the federal government, paid jointly for. Um, and that has, you know, compared to a state like uh, Virginia, which is just now getting around to expanding Medicaid, or Alabama, or Tennessee, which also has a huge opioid addiction problem, it just it covers a lot more people and gives them access to treatment without having to worry about how to pay for it. And But it's, it's so interesting, and I, and I thought your, your highlight of, of Medicaid was so important because oftentimes when people talk about the virtues of the expansion of Medicaid, dealing with addiction is not the first thing that people oftentimes think of. Yeah, it certainly didn't used to be, although people in, who, who tr- in these states that are involved in Medicaid coverage and treating the poor now, you know, it's kind of top of mind for a lot of these states that the need for addiction treatment can be, you know, one of the biggest health care needs up there with diabetes treatment and um, some of the other chronic conditions. Addiction treatment really is a persistent chronic condition, an incredibly common chronic condition in a lot of these places. And it seems like that's also one of the differentiating factors behind Medicaid as well. It's it's the idea that it's actually treating it as an, it's, it's actually treating it as an illness. It, it actually is coming up with 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 medical uh, treatments and conclusions instead of uh, instead of some of the you know the, the the quicker criminalization arguments that I think had taken the day for so long. Right. It's part of a more of definite more of a public health response yeah. to addiction that states really have had no choice but to try to catch up on over the past couple years. And the good thing about Medicaid coverage versus just like using some grant here or there to provide on-the-spot addiction treatment for the poor is that they also have access to primary care, to specialized care, um, all all sorts of things. Addiction treatment is part of a much broader package, and certainly people with addiction, a lot of them have a lot of other chronic health needs. A lot of people have hepatitis C from uh, injecting drugs. Um, you know, they need all kinds of wound care from abscesses that develop from injecting drugs. Um, and mental health care is another huge piece of it. And Medicare just sort of provides blanket coverage for all of that. It's not just treating the addiction. Mm-hmm. So another reason it's important. And but one thing that's been clear, and in, in, in you, you do a very good job in the article of talking about is, you know, this hasn't been cheap either, right? I mean, the, the state is spending about a billion dollars a year, uh, and most of it's directly funding Medicaid, correct? Right. And a big chunk of that billion dollars a year is actually um, federal funds, um, and maybe even more federal funds, because under the Medicaid expansion, the federal government pays for a little more than 90% of the cost of that overall at this point, and the state is on the hook for some 10% of it. So it's still a considerable expense for the state, but 
through the Affordable Care Act, a lot of the money is coming from the federal government. So big expense for the federal government as well. There, there's there's a section of your article uh, where you quote Sam Quinones, who's actually a guest we're having on later in the program. He's mm-hmm. the author of Dreamland. Um, but he testified before Congress saying, uh, in the article you said that he mentions, he says, the more cops and public health nurses go out for a beer, bridge that cultural chasm between them, the better chance the country had at solving the problem. Yeah, I heard Sam say that in a hearing months before, I think it was months before I wrote the Staten story, and it just kind of stuck in my head. Yeah. It was rattling around in my head as what seemed like a really smart, important um, piece of advice yeah. for cities who are dealing with this. And so I went back to the hearing transcript and pulled it out when I wrote the Dayton story because I could kind of see that in action in Dayton. I could see the police chief really collaborating with the public health department. Um, and they they weren't sort of – they didn't have dueling philosophies like you do see in some other cities in the country right now still. Um, they were on the same page in having – not not having too punitive approach for people who weren't necessarily committed to getting treatment right away, but having a shared focus of just doing everything they could to save lives day by day. One thing I would say, though, well, what happened in Dayton that wasn't really had nothing to do with public health was that you saw this particularly horribly deadly analog of fentanyl card called carfentanil. Um, really hit the streets there in 2017, especially early in 2017, and you just saw deaths spike up and up and up. And in hindsight, people generally think a lot of that spike was due to carfentanil appearing there. Nobody really knows why it appeared there or where it was coming from. And then just just as quickly it disappeared later in the year, all but disappeared. and when they didn't see it in the rest of 2018, that definitely helped their overdose death numbers uh, stay lower than they had been the year before. And just last week, we saw two um, public health departments in Ohio, I believe in Columbus and Cleveland, put out warnings saying that carfentanil was back, and they're seeing it pop up again. So, you know, it's that's an aspect that's much harder to control, especially from a public health standpoint. Because with something like carfentanil, no, no matter how much Narcan you use, you may not be able to save someone. Um, so just something to watch out for in terms of the supply on the streets. And a frustrating piece of this is that all these public health interventions like Medicaid expansion don't really matter if somebody takes a grain or two of carfentanil and immediately dies. Why is carfentanil so dangerous? It's just extremely concentrated. Um, it's used in, it's famously used as an elephant tranquilizer. Um, mm. And it seems to be coming in the mail from China more than some of the, just your regular fentanyl does, which tends to also come up. Regular fentanyl comes just as much, if not more, from Mexico, um, although maybe having originated in China. The carfentanil is sort of this specialized boutique analog that people seem to be ordering some of through the mail, but even a little small amount can kill a ton of people. So um, nobody knows 
why it disappeared when it did in Dayton. Nobody probably knows why it's resurfacing now in some of the other cities, but it's something to worry about. Abby Goodenough was a healthcare reporter for The New York Times. We'll put a link to her excellent article on Dayton, Ohio's overdose combating strategies online and on our website. Abby, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your work. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, we're joined by Dr. Shelley Chu, the senior medical advisor for the Baltimore City Health Department. We're going to discuss what Baltimore City is doing to address the opioid crisis, what we've accomplished, and how far we still need to go. Stay with us. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. Today, we are tackling the incredibly difficult topic of addiction, and especially when it comes to opioids. Opioid addiction has become a national health care emergency. And here in Baltimore, more people die of overdoses than homicides. To discuss the city's plan for combating this destructive trend, we are now thrilled to be joined by Dr. Shelley Chu. Dr. Chu currently serves as a senior medical advisor for the Baltimore City Health Department. And uh, as, as she's sitting in front of me right now, uh, you know, this is all pre-taped. But by the time this show airs, uh, Dr. Chu might be a, a, a mom second time over. Yes, yes. Well, with my first girl. Yes. Um, yeah, it will be my second child. Um, <laughs> I have a two-year-old son, and I'm looking forward to meeting my little girl. Well, we are, we are all looking Looking forward to to meeting her, and, and particularly knowing that she is on, uh, you know, at any point now she could enter the earth. We uh, we're <laughs> thankful that you took the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, and so. So I'm really glad that you mentioned the idea of, of collaborative efforts. Uh, you know, part of the theme we've been talking about here, even in the show thus far, is this idea that there's not one single vertical that owns the lane on being able to deal with a problem as, as immense as addiction, right? So it's the partnership with the nonprofits. It's partnerships with the, with the police department. It's partnerships with, uh, with religious leaders. It's partnership with government leaders. So can you talk a, a little about uh, and give some examples of the city's collaborative efforts to be able to address this singular challenge that the city is facing. Oh, absolutely. Um, As you mentioned, collaboration is extremely important. Um, I want to first give some context about the overdose epidemic. It is a devastating crisis. Every day, nearly 200 people in the U.S. are dying from overdoses. Um, Drug overdoses kills more people than HIV AIDS, 
than car crashes or or guns. And in Baltimore City in 2017, we had 761 people who died from overdoses. And so that's two people who are dying every single day and their mothers, their children, their young students, their grandparents who are dying. And so we partner with faith-based organizations. We partner with local businesses. We partner with libraries. We also partner with fire department and our law enforcement agencies as well. Um, We also partner with hospitals. And one of the programs that we worked on was the Levels of Care Initiative. Um, And the Levels of Care Initiative is a model that came from Rhode Island. um, And it's creating a common framework of how hospitals should be addressing the opioid epidemic. And so there are three levels, levels three, two, and one. And with one is the most comprehensive approach. So a hospital who is a level one, they're not only thinking about whether or not they're providing the antidote uh, for the patient to reverse an overdose, um, but they're also treating patients or they're even preventing addiction from happening by looking at the prescribing pa- uh, patterns of a patient in their hospitals. And we are just so lucky to have some of the best healthcare systems in the whole world and for them to be partnering with the health department on this initiative. So one of the thematic focus areas for this show is understanding what works and thing, then identifying and saying, how can we then bring it here? And it sounds like in the case of Rhode Island, that's something that has already been done. There's an identification of something that was working in another jurisdiction and then was brought then to Baltimore to have similar type of impacts. How did you all first learn about what happened in Rhode Island and what was in the process of saying, we want to look to essentially import something that we think could be a potential best practice? Uh, as we we're reviewing this epidemic, we're trying to figure out the next best practices. We're always looking at the news. We're looking at literature that's coming out to see what we can take back into the city as well. And so with Rhode Island, um, we had talked to some of their um, their experts there and learned more about their processes as well. So we had learned about it in the news and had reached out to them um, as well. Another example is the LEAD program, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program that's in Baltimore City, and that's a best practice that came from Seattle. So instead of arresting someone with um, with addiction, um, the... um the, uh, the program is actually pairing them with a case manager to then help the patient get into treatment and to provide some wraparound services as well. And now in, in Baltimore City, there's the uh, the three-pronged approach that the city's been, been championing, um, and particularly when it comes to addressing opioid addiction. Can you talk a little bit about the three-pronged approach? Oh, absolutely. Um, as a city health department, as a city, we're just really trying to throw everything we can because... It is a devastating crisis. Um, The first prong is we really need to prevent these deaths from occurring. And fortunately for opioid overdose, there is an antidote, and that antidote is called naloxone. And when you give someone or you administer naloxone... Narcan for for the... the, For Narcan. uh, Narcan. And when you administer Narcan to someone who is dying from an opioid overdose, within minutes, they can be walking and talking as well. So we're very fortunate to have that medication And since 2015, the health department has been working on training people on how to administer Narcan or Naloxone and 
also uh, been distributing naloxone as well. And everyday residents since 2015 have saved over 3,000 lives. Um, And last year alone, there were 1,800 lives that were saved as well. Um, And these are individual citizens because there's also a universal prescription. Yes. That people can now get. Can you talk a little bit about that um, as well? Yes. So there is a standing order um, where uh, where anyone can go into a pharmacy. You do not need a prescription to purchase naloxone or Narcan. And you can obtain um, Narcan. And if you are on Medicaid or on medical assistance, you can purchase Narcan for a dollar or even with no money. And if you have private insurance, you would pay your um, typical copayment amount as well. But you do not need a prescription. You do not need to show evidence that you completed a training. Um, In Baltimore City, we are very lucky. We have a um, 24-hour, seven days a week uh, crisis information referral line. So anyone in Baltimore City can call 410-433-5175. And with that line, um, individuals, trained individuals on the other side will connect you to information or to treatment programs as well, either for yourself or for your loved ones. Um, As a health department, we also go to where people are. So the health department has mobile clinics um, that goes to different places throughout Baltimore City and provide addiction treatment as well. They also provide other services such as HIV treatment, hepatitis treatment, um, and also wound management and care management. And they also provide information about other services that the health department provides. And the third pillar is really the education piece. Uh, With addiction, there's just so much stigma, and it's really been rooted in the war on drugs that came from the 1970s. And even today, I still hear examples of language that is really stigmatizing. Uh, For example, um, we'll out here, someone is clean, um, and clean meaning that either they're not using substances, or maybe it refers to their toxicology screen, that it was negative for any type of substances. Uh, But I think clean should be a word that's used only for when you're showering. (laughs) Um, Because when when we think about other diseases, such as diabetes, we don't tell someone, well, your blood is dirty. Um, I'm saying that in quotes um, with sugar. We don't say that. And we don't have that type of language. But it's because addiction has been stigmatized and we've been using punitive language for so long. Um, So it's really important that we provide education and we let everyone know that even the language that we use impacts our perception of how um, we view addiction because addiction is a disease. So I'm I'm seeing across from from you now in your ninth month of pregnancy, uh, getting ready for a beautiful baby girl uh, to to join us. Um, And we also know that Maryland has a very high rate of pregnant women Mm -hmm. who are also addicted to to, to opioids. Uh, What danger specifically does this pose for both the mother and the baby? Um, So with opioids, there are um, exposures to both mom and the baby. There are some dangers. Um, So pregnant moms who do use opioids, they are at risk for having an early delivery, um, having a low birth weight where their baby is um, um, born with a low birth weight. The baby might have breathing difficulties, may have low blood sugars. Um, And after the baby is born, the baby may go into withdrawal um, because the medications that the mom takes, it does pass through the placenta. Um, So a baby who is experiencing withdrawal may may experience body shakes, seizures, um, tremors, excessive crying, um, trouble sleeping, vomiting, diarrhea. But 
I want to emphasize also that the baby itself is not addicted. It's um, it's experiencing physical symptoms of withdrawal. I think addiction, especially in the setting of pregnancy, shows how overcoming this disease is because any mom who is expecting a baby has so much love for that child and. Um, the fact that if they are still using substances, it just shows how um, overcoming the disease is. Um, and the best practice for um, pregnant moms who are using, who are addicted to opioids, is for them to be on medications for treatment. Um, because to go cold turkey is also very dangerous for the baby. And um, the best practices for a mom once she delivers is actually to treat the mom like a human being. Um, so meaning that the baby should still remain with with the mom in the room. Uh, we recommend breastfeeding. The benefits outweigh the risk. Um, and then also recommending skin-to-skin -skin care so that the mom can bond with the child as well. You just, you just, uh, what you just said was so important and profound. Um, it shows the potency of the illness we're talking about. Absolutely. You know, when um, there's nothing that any yeah. parent wouldn't do for their child. Oh, absolutely, exactly. Um, and if you have any question about the potency of what we're talking about, yeah. talk about a, a, a pregnant mother yeah. who is addicted and can't kick it, even despite the fact, knowing yeah. what that is potentially not just doing to them, but to their child. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think it just shows just how powerful um, this disorder can be. and. Um, I mean, it's exactly what you've mentioned, that a mom has the greatest love for her baby. And so it is truly, a, truly a disorder that needs to be treated with evidence-based treatment. We've been speaking with Dr. Shelley Chu, the senior medical advisor for the Baltimore City Health Department. Dr. Chu, it's been wonderful being with you. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for having me today. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City. Coming up, we'll speak to the devastating personal experiences of addiction for addicts, for their families, and how the opioid crisis is wreaking havoc in rural and urban communities alike. What does the future hold? What policies do we need to embrace before it's too late? We'll be joined by the two final guests who will address the personal devastation of addiction and overdose. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hi, I'm Westmore, and welcome back to Future City. In the final portion of this program, we're addressing the personal implications of addiction on the addicts and on their families. We're now joined by Dr. Sam Snodgrass. Dr. Snodgrass is a member of the Board of Directors of Broken No More, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing science-based treatment for addictive disorders. He is also a member of the Board of Directors of GRASP, which stands for Grief Recovery After a Substance Passing. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your relationship to the topic of addiction? You know, I understand that you started using heroin yourself when you were 20 years old. 
Can you tell us about that time of your life? Uh, sure. Uh, 20 years old, I was a sophomore at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Uh, I, don't, I had a good life at the time. I was uh, going to college, uh, uh, typical college-type life. Uh, but I did take uh, experiment with some uh, uh, LSD and psilocybin in those years. But I never thought that I would do heroin. Uh, in the fall of 1976, I walked into a friend's apartment, and they were cooking and shooting black tar heroin. And uh, I can't tell you why. I really can't give you a good reason, except that I did it too. And for the next 13 years, I just used occasionally. I used heroin or Dilaudid, opioid very similar to heroin. I just used it occasionally. I'd use them on the weekend or, or maybe not even that often. It was never anything consistent. I never got strung out. I never became addicted. Uh, in 1979, I graduated with a B.A. in psychology from UALR. In 1981, I went to uh, the graduate program in psychology at the University of Georgia. I have a master's in experimental, and I have a Ph.D. in biopsychology. Uh, I was working in the field. I was working in behavioral pharmacology. I could read the definition of addiction in a book. Uh, so I, I, I could see addiction in my friends. I read the definition in a book, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand what it was. I got to the um, uh, behavioral farm lab. It was November of 87. There was a bottle of powdered methadone hydrochloride rolling around in a drawer. wasn't in the safe with the other drugs. It was just rolling around in a drawer. And I watched that bottle of methadone roll around in a drawer until April of 1989. And I got into that bottle of powdered methadone. And I started shooting out of it. I did something with that methadone I hadn't done with the heroin or the Dilaudid. And, and, and that's, I started shooting it every day. Hmm. And then I started shooting it two or three times a day. And then I started increasing my dose. And the whole time I was doing that, I was telling myself that when, you know, when I want to, I can quit. When I want to, I can stop. I, I hadn't had any trouble before. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand that I'd reached a point to where I couldn't stop. No matter how much I tried, no matter how hard I fought it, I could not stop. This was one of the most mystifying things to me, is, is that I would fight with myself. I would tell myself, I am not going to use today. I don't care what happens. I, I, I don't care. I'm not going to use today. And then I'd use. Uh, it's something that, that that I could not understand why I couldn't control my own behavior. It was the most mystifying thing to me is is to fight with myself so hard and to lose and to lose every day. And it's like a game I was playing. It was like I, I, I'd go to bed that night and I'd say, okay, I almost made it today. If I try a little bit harder tomorrow, I won't use. But, of course, tomorrow never came. And why this is so powerful is you're in the middle of addiction, heavy addiction. But according to your own mind, you're like, but I'm not an addict because I can stop. Yeah. Which is what shows the power of addiction, right? Is that you're you're, because you'll look at because there was almost this idea of looking at someone else and saying, well, that person's an addict. I'm not an addict because I can stop Uh, and not understanding the power of addiction. Thank you. That's, That's an excellent point, because, again, before this is the real thing. And thank you for bringing this up. I could see that in my friends, and again, I could read the book definition, 
But the thing about an opioid addiction is no one understands what it's like to live an opioid addiction until you're in one. Yeah. And by that time, it's just a little late. What you're saying is so important because you really are taking, it, I mean, this is, there's a science, and there has to be a science-based treatment of addiction that that you know there's not a punitive uh that you really have to take a science base which actually really leads to your work around broken no more um and and just for reference for our listeners you know that's a, it's a national nonprofit that focuses on science-based treatment and pushes away from more punitive drug policies why is looking at it from this perspective so important okay let me let me <laughs> Because punitive drug policies don't work. Punitive drug policies end up getting people killed. Punitive drug policies have driven our, our criminal justice and mass incarceration. And look where we're at. 47 years after Richard Nixon declared his so-called war on drugs, we have higher rates of addiction. We have higher rates of overdose and death. The drugs on the street are more plentiful, more potent, uh, more easily accessible than ever, cheaper. This doesn't work. Why? Because this is an illness. This is a and again, acquired disease of brain structure and function. You're trying to control an illness by declaring it illegal. Hmm. Guess what? That does not work. This is a public health harm reduction medical problem. And until we start treating it as such, more people are just going to die. Uh, the CDC estimated that we had 47,600 opioid overdose deaths in 2017, and it's going to be worse in 2018. There was a study that came out in the Journal of American Medical Association February 1st that estimated that we are going to have over 700,000 opioid overdose deaths between 2016 and 2025 if we do not change what we're doing. We are not bad people. We're not, we don't deserve to be treated as criminals, none of us thought we would be in this situation. Right. If we knew the first time we took a pill, first time we did a shot, if we understood what opioid addiction really is, which means you can't stop because you're starving for these opioids, if we understood that, we probably wouldn't take that next one. Genetic, social, environmental, we end up becoming strung out addicted to these things. And once we are like that, we are in a disease state medical condition. And yeah. putting us in prison really doesn't help that. That's why I think this work becomes so important is that, you know, it really is changing how we talk about this, you know, both amongst the, the family members, of, amongst those who are suffering, and amongst the policymakers. So, I mean, the, so the work that you're doing with Broken No More and GRASP uh, is just incredibly important. You know, we, we've been speaking with Dr. Sam Snodgrass, who's the member of the board of directors of Broken No More, as well as GRASP, Grief Recovery After a Substance Passing. Uh, your work is so important, and we just can't thank you enough for speaking with us today. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the time. Thank you. If you're just joining us, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. We're now joined over the phone by Sam Quinones. He's a journalist, storyteller, former L.A. Times reporter, and the author of three acclaimed books of, na of narrative nonfiction. His most recent book is Dreamland, a true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So first of all, uh, please tell us the story of Dreamland, how you found the topic, and why this topic was so important to you. Um, I was working, I had lived and worked in Mexico City for many years and then came to Los Angeles to work on a uh, work for the LA Times. And while there, the Mexican drug war kind of began to kick off in a very uh, uh, horrifying way. And so they put me on a team of reporters to work on stories about 
drug trafficking, and I began to realize that heroin traffickers were all of a sudden doing a very good, brisk, new business, and I couldn't understand why that would be, because I thought heroin was this old-style drug. And so I began to tour around, and I found the story of this one town in Mexico, uh, Jalisco, in the state of Nayarit, where everyone uh, came to the United States to sell heroin like pizza, kind of a pizza delivery service almost for heroin, you know. And, and I began to uh, work on that story and follow these guys, and they had set up these crews in different, different cities all across the country. But I still couldn't explain uh, why they were doing such good business now. And it was only until I realized that a much bigger story lay behind them that I was unaware of. And that was a revolution in pain management that um, that was uh, in modern medicine that, that had kind of taken over in the 90s when I was in Mexico. I was unaware of this. And, um, and, and that held it. The doctors needed to make far, far more aggressive liberal use of of, uh, of narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers, and that these were now deemed to be virtually non-addictive for people who were in pain, and therefore there was no risk of addiction of addicting these people. And so, basically, this this promotion by pharmaceutical companies and pain specialists um, pushed pharmaceutical uh, the, the, these 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 narcotic painkillers kind of all across uh, the the country to the point where people, in fact, did get addicted, and a lot of those folks then began to switch to to heroin when they couldn't no longer find the pills or the pills were too expensive they would switch to heroin so it was this story that i kind of backed into really um dealing with uh issues related to mexican heroin traffickers first um that, that really was the the spawn the book you know and i thought one of the most powerful aspects of this is and heartbreaking is you're very clear to show that that this rise this epidemic this wasn't an accident you know this is not this is not something that people should be surprised about uh this is the intersection of capitalism uh with seemingly unregulated distribution of pain medication uh and how this thing continued to evolve into something that it turned into today yeah i think i think we should not be surprised that that we got here, but the time people would have been, if you had said that, you know, at the time people were taking a very blasé view about about many people, particularly in the, in, in in medicine. Uh, uh, again, drug companies, but also doctors, pain specialists would have said, "Oh no, no, there's no risk of this hap- of anything uh, of this happening," and and because these are people you prescribe when you prescribe them to people who are in pain. Then, then there's not a problem. And the, there's two problems with that. First of all, when you when you prescribe uh, 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 narcotic painkillers to people who are in pain for brief, very limited time, there probably isn't a problem. Hmm. It's when you begin to allow them to take home enormous bottles of the stuff and then renew the prescription and then renew it again and again. That's when people begin to get into trouble. Plus, uh, almost uh, more important than that is the fact that the more these pills are prescribed to all manner of people who a lot of them never really need them and, and, and take two or three of them for say a post operative pain, a lot of those pills for a variety through a variety of means end up in the black market. And that's what we saw. We saw an enormous expansion for year after year after year for twenty years that had to do with uh, uh, you know, expanding the number of, of pills all across the country. A lot of that ends up in the black market. 
And, and at that point, uh, people begin to see this at high school parties, um, uh, locker rooms. Okay, it, it, the, the more prevalent the pills, the more addiction spread to people who, who were not prescribed the pills, but yet those pills had been prescribed to somebody. They were not stolen from a, from a pharmacy. And so all of this, though, would to the people who were first promoting the idea would have been very surprising. We, no, no, that can never happen. And in fact, that's that's exactly what did. It kind of opened a Pandora's box that we are still dealing with uh, 25 years later. And it's interesting. I mean, we, we, this is a country of, of, of well over 300 million people. So, the you know, there's not many things that uh, you can say exist and shows itself in, in a country as big and broad and, and vast and diverse as, as the United States of America. Uh, this is one of them. And I think that, you know, yeah. for folks here in Baltimore, we know firsthand the the impact that opioid addiction has had on Baltimore City. But you really frame this also sure. as a crisis to uh, to and a threat to America's heartland. Um, you know how you know, I, I rural areas, suburban areas, urban areas are all impacted by this. And I think, you know, one of the things that seemed like you wanted to highlight in this was the fact that this that this doesn't have geographic nor racial nor you know, capital boundaries. Uh, this happens fast and communities turn quickly. Yeah. And and I think, uh, you know, this and, and Dreamland is just was a, a great illustration of that. The fact that it doesn't have these these artificial boundaries. Right. No, I think that's 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 kind of what's happened all across the, the country. And that's why I think um, at first it was able to spread because in so many areas that were new to this, they were uh, people in those areas were ashamed and were mortified and so tried to to silence it and, and, and not talk about it. And the, the obituaries of their loved ones when they died would be fabrications, basically, died of a heart attack at home at 25 or something like that. And then um, and then they would lie about where, well, my son's off visiting an uncle in Wyoming when he's really in treatment somewhere, that kind of thing. There was this conspiracy of silence because so many areas that were now affected by this, because this is, starts with doctors, and doctors are everywhere, and they're in rural America, they're in suburban areas, all that kind of stuff. All those people kind of conspired, not knowing that they were conspired, but they kind of all didn't want to talk about it. Everyone had, I found this when I was researching my book. Now we see it on the, head, the headlines of every newspaper and all these news outlets and so on. But when I was writing the book, there was a deep, profound silence that made me feel really alone. Like I, I'm out there trying to write about this and no one wants to talk about it. No one cares enough. But what that did was it allowed for all of these different areas to just develop these horrible problems with addiction without anybody really knowing. So a little over a year ago, you actually testified in front of Congress about this in, in January yeah. 2018. Uh, what did you speak about? And can you tell me about that experience? That was very surreal. I mean, I'm a reporter. I'm not I'm not used to the test. I'm just a, a daily reporter, news crime reporter, basically. So the fact the idea that senators wanted to talk to me uh, all alone, too, I was the only one testifying that day. Um, was was a, a strange and, and amazing. I was still kind of left speechless at it all. Um, but I think that was part of the, the the change that had taken place. The three years before, I was out in the middle of nowhere and saying, "Hey, this is a problem. No one really cared." And now the senators want to talk to me. So, but what I told them was, there's a lot of things I told them. I testified for two hours. But I think uh, right now, what I'd like to focus on is that the, what I told them is that this was a perfect opportunity 
this is this is one of the reasons why they got I, I assume they got into public service because this was a grand opportunity to use a, a disaster, an absolute catastrophe, and turn it into something uh, uh, profoundly positive. And that, that, that what this epidemic was calling on us to do was to understand that there were vast swaths of the country that were uh, uh, isolated, abandoned, uh, out, uh, kind of cut out of, of the prosperity of, of our country the last 20, 30, 40 years. And that this was an opportunity to rebuild those countries, and I I, I called them to, on them to, to to think that maybe this was a, a moment for a kind of a, a Marshall Plan of, of rebuilding America. The Marshall Plan being the plan that we used after World War II to help Western Europe rebuild. Well, we need something similar to rebuild uh, parts of New Mexico and parts of. Uh, uh, inner city Baltimore and and uh, rural Indiana and and rural Ohio and Appalachia, West Virginia, and so on. That this is a great moment because this epidemic is the only domestic issue, major domestic issue that I can point to anyway, that brings together red and blue and does not send people immediately scurrying to their red and blue corners and never to emerge. This is the only time, and it, it is it is it is essential that we use that, that we, we understand that that's the case. And that's kind of what I was trying to get them to see, that this is a, this is a profound, optimistic moment amid all this catastrophe and destruction and death and horror, that this is actually a time when they can step up and, and, and be part of a much grander, larger solution. And then when they, at the point, to the point where when they retire, they can look back and say, that's one of the great things I ever did in public office. We've been speaking with Sam Quinones, who's a journalist and storyteller, brilliant storyteller. His most recent book is Dreamland, the true tale of America's opioid epidemic. Sam, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure, Well, Thank you. So before we close out, I just want to, as always, leave everybody with a few thoughts. You know, this, this show is, is, is personal to a lot of people. Uh, the impact of addiction touches so many of us, uh, including me. And uh, just recently, I had a, a dear uh, lifelong friend who died, who was battling this for a while. Uh, I wasn't sure how exactly to deal with it or process it. And on the urging of his mother, uh, who told us to don't dance around the fact that being at the funeral of a 37-year-old is not natural, and to go and change the world in his name, that's what I then decided to try to do. And so for the, for the conclusion for this show, I'd like to share with you something that I wrote to remember my friend. My friend David Lund Jr. died of a drug overdose on January 5th, one of Maryland's first opioid casualties of 2019. He died alone in a basement in Baltimore a city where 692 people died from opioids in 2017, an unacceptable number that the latest data, when it's released, will almost certainly confirm that it went up in 2018. I've struggled with whether to publicly share this, both because of concern for David's privacy and trouble processing my own feelings. But at his funeral, the pastor reminded us that we should not be ashamed nor hold our heads down because of this illness that took our friend. I choose to remember David this way he stands in a photo taken a few months ago at Bethel AME Church. Humble, 
kind, giving glory to God. But I could not do service to his memory and to his mom's wishes at his funeral without taking stock of his entire life, a life that in so many ways was a warring face-off between his promise and his circumstances. David was a third-generation Baltimorean, the only son of one of the kindest and most loving families I've ever known. As a young man growing up in Baltimore in the 90s, he saw a spectrum of opportunity and disadvantage that almost seemed to put sustained success just beyond certainty. When he was 14, his father was shot six times trying to retrieve David's stolen bicycle. David's father would survive, but his injuries haunt him to this day. David's brilliance in the classroom and on the basketball court carried him to one of the top private schools in the state and then to a Division I college scholarship, only to see injuries derail his playing career. He received his bachelor's degree and earned credits towards his master's and was an executive at a minority-owned welding company and a youth basketball coach. He was an incredible father, brother, son, uncle, and friend, a dear friend to me for 25 years since we were kids. In the months and weeks before his death, David reached out to his close friends for help in how to battle his illness. In some of my last conversations with him, he would say that his fear was that he would disappoint us. My fear now is that we could disappoint him. His loss is nothing short of a tragedy and a travesty for those who knew and loved him and the community he worked to change through his leadership, coaching, mentoring, and example of how to be a good friend and family member. I write this to ensure that David's legacy includes creating more compassion and more pathways. We need to love one another in a way that reflects this life's urgency and fragility. We need to change the way we talk about addiction. Step one is reminding people that the disease of addiction is something we must treat like all other diseases, with urgency, compassion, and understanding that the victim is exactly that, a victim. We must remind people that there is no typical or predictable person suffering from addiction and that their pain must be met with resolve and never silence. Rest in peace, David. I miss you. And I promise to change the world with your memory in mind. Future City is an original feature of WYPR. The show airs on the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can explore past episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.